So Jonathan Rosenbaum, he's he's a guy who probably of the mainstream critics hated the movie Buffalo '66 the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's he, I I particularly like him. Like I think he, you know, what's um, he what's he write for? I, I don't know this guy. He writes for the Chicago Reader. Okay, local rag. Yeah, local rag. Okay. And I would describe him. He he's not in the Hobbit, but he looks like he should be. <laughs> I would sure. describe him. But he he has something that I think really pinpoints what's great about it. But it's what he thinks is bad about it. And he says, Excellent. "Gallo was a guy who grew up in Buffalo, hating his parents and himself, who eventually made it big as an actor and returned home to settle some scores." By making a movie about himself and his parents and hiring Richie to play a woman who plays his wife. And it's a statement about a sense of entitlement in movies, not about reality, that Buffalo 66 becomes interesting. That sense of entitlement even starts to seem halfway rational once you realize that male movie fans are virtually conditioned by this culture to spin such absurd fantasies. That you can kick your girlfriend in the teeth and still be given unending, boundless affection in return. Male brutality turning into male sweetness once the redemptive love kicks in is part of the package. You might even say the brutality is justifiable because it makes the love possible. If Billy hadn't kidnapped Layla, she probably wouldn't have given him the time of day. And, like, he's right. Mm-hmm. But. I guess. Because he. You don't think so? He doesn't kick her, does he? No, <laughs> he doesn't kick her. But, you know, he's being uh, hyperbolic there. But. He's right in like his read on the movies and the on the movie and his you know read on the pathology of Gallo. He spends a lot of the review talking about the pathology, but like he's insistent on like moralizing about the movie and yeah. getting hung up on like this movie's bad because it's a male fantasy movie. And I I don't know. I think that so many critics are hung up on this like sort of tiered system of like great, good, decent bad sure and letterbox fucked everything up. yeah it's <laughs> just really letterbox Rosenbaum in the it? 90s here he's really crippled by that i think yeah <laughs> he's like fucking certified <laughs> rotten god damn it right and i don't know i think we should just be more like compelled by like what's interesting like this yeah. movie is like interesting because of like what a zany character and misogynist like gallo is and how that gets presented or not presented uh, on screen. Well, so he in in no way on screen or off screen has Gallo ever tried to defend the character of Billy Brown, I think. Right. And it blows my mind when people act like that isn't the case. Vincent Gallo, the man, is a scumbag. Billy Brown, the character, is a scumbag for different reasons. And that right, he's more of I a think. loser. Than... Sure, he's a, he's a loser. Yeah. You know, he gets out of jail. And he fucking runs around trying to find a place to piss for the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie. Like, I don't know what male fantasy that I don't know who has that particular male fantasy. I I think just the whole time, the whole movie, it's dreary and cold out and he's not dressed for the weather. And it's everything is just so wretched and awful, you know, and like right down to, you know, Ben Gazzara's nipples through his like thin (laughs) shirt. Like, I and. So that's what's interesting about the you know the male fantasy criticism is that like i find that it's it's kind of more offensive in like the rom-coms of the day that are like mm-hmm. more misogynistic in that the leads are not losers 
Yeah. You know, even right. though, like like Billy Crystal, let's say like not a handsome guy. No. But still like has the same like narrative structure that, you know, you wouldn't call this a romantic comedy, but if the criticism is about the arc of the male fantasy, I think you could apply it to most romantic comedies like of the day and even today. Like those yeah. Even those like mainstream romantic comedies come more under fire now when tom hanks buys meg ryan's bookstore and closes it anyway <laughs> they still fall in love you know right even when he figures out that he's the one who's made her got mail right but it, must it's love dogs i don't remember which one it is <laughs> there's many uh-huh. but this like doesn't attempt to create a sort of like i guess love story out of it mm-hmm. like billy brown is like you said pathetic he's he's a loser yeah and you know, like when he opens his locker and there's a picture. Like I don't, I don't know how old he's supposed to be. Yeah. Maybe thirty in the movie. Like Gallo was forty at the time. Yeah. But like that would make when sense. he has a picture of Wendy, this high school girl who hated him in his bowling <laughs> locker, years after high school, after uh-huh. he's graduated. Like that is very much a loser thing. Right. And not only that, to make up a story like, yeah, well, I, I had to let her go. <laughs> I could have any girl I wanted. That's it's not the, the life I lead, you know? Yeah. And by depicting Billy Brown like that, it like undercuts the male fantasy rom-com in a way that is, I think, more critical of it than, you know, something like a Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan thing. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I love most about the movie is it, it doesn't subscribe or attempt to promote the storybook ideas of love romance and redemption that i imagine were prevailing that time and certainly earlier in hollywood in the 80s and earlier you know he's a vile prick and his his breakout gesture of humanity at the end is deciding not to assassinate the next football player and then building on that enthusiasm where he gets such a stiff dick for being a nice guy he buys some other asshole in a donut shop a cookie Right. And that's it. And again, I mean, I think that's intentional, right? Like Vincent Gallo is a, a, a vile prick as well, but he's not stupid. And so when you write and direct that, I think you know what the optics of that are. And it it's very much framed in a way where this is a guy who, you know, was just some podunk idiot from a, a working class town who just got out of jail for an extended period of time. And this is how he grapples with the world around him. And and I think that extends to the character of Layla, too, who's naive in her own way and, and, and somehow starved for attention that, you know, she's taken a dance class, blah, 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 and and has this kind of prototypical, I think I can change him sort of sort of archetype to her and and, and doesn't really know how to react to being taken hostage besides just falling in love with the guy behind the wheel, you know, or not even behind the wheel. Cause she has to fucking drive. Right. Which is <laughs> right. another very funny thing. Um, you know, it's interesting. There was a, there was a negative review I was reading the other day that describes, and it, was, it was a lukewarm review. It describes Layla as reverse kidnapping Billy Brown. Okay. Eventually in the movie, which I thought was kind of interesting. And <laughs> <laughs> so this was a negative review it written was a, by somebody who, it was lukewarm who's like women ruin it <laughs> no. i think what they were trying they were like ascribing the change after 
you know, after they leave his parents' house, they were describing the change in the dynamic wherein Layla is sort of like forcing herself into his life while he's trying to, you know, he has this tunnel vision to just kind of commit this crime. Mm -hmm. And she forces herself in there and kind of turns his life around and was sort of like, Mm -hmm. you know, kidnapping is maybe a too strong of a word, you know, but especially if you're going to compare it to how he kidnaps her <laughs> earlier on. Well, she's but, got the car keys. But she, <laughs> he didn't know how to drive the car. No. Um, but so, side note about... See, I thought you knew who Rosenbaum was because I thought that we followed him one time. Really? After the movies. We but, followed, like, followed him to his car or something? Like, <laughs> just, just followed him. But now I'm thinking... So, you did not go to the mountain with me, did you? I've, the I've never seen movie? the mountain unless you're talking about some amusement park. Okay. <laughs> no. Space Mountain. So I remember seeing him. Um, so this was at the Siskel Center, right? Sure. Um, I don't think we've ever seen a movie there together. Okay. Downtown. Well, I saw him at Potbelly's before the Siskel. There's a Potbelly's around the corner. I would have pegged him Love for Pop more Belly. of a Chick-fil-A guy across the street. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, so I'm at, well, again, local guy, <laughs> local guy. Have it hot. <laughs> so I'm at pot bellies and sure enough, he went into the theater and that was, it was the mountain, something I've been waiting to see for, for a while as a Rick Alverson head. And instead of asking him, you know, what he thought of the movie, I think I didn't want to be crushed in him tearing the movie apart. Uh-huh. Uh, I followed him across the street to CBS. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, thinking maybe I might get a glimpse of like how he felt about the movie. Like maybe uh-huh. his purchase at CBS would be an indication. Uh, where, uh, like he's choosing to buy chapstick instead of shoplift it. What a fucking <laughs> idiot. I can't believe I ever put any stock into his opinion. Right. Which is kind of an interesting exercise. Um, you know, what you buy at CBS is, is how you would feel about the movie. Mm-hmm. I think in the case of the mountain, uh, Breast milk would probably be. He's <laughs> <Yeah, it's> got <laughs> some Soylent or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I remember leaving. Yeah. So it wasn't you. I went with uh, Desi and Sarah. Okay. And I remember Sarah asking me after the movie. So this was like, she asked me this because I was. Would you care to explain who Desi and Sarah are? <laughs> in... So De- De- Desi is my ex girlfriend, now spouse potentially husband as mm-hmm. they they transition um and then sarah is another ex-girlfriend mm-hmm. um because why why shouldn't they meet right but uh You're big on that yeah <laughs> right senseless collision of worlds I, I admire you for it thank you but i remember sarah asking me a very peculiar question i think actually you know kind of relates to what we're talking about is that she said do you wish there would have been a trigger warning about the psychiatric wards in the mountain. And because I was like maybe a year and a half out of the psych ward. Out of the joint. Out of, <laughs> I was a year and a half out of the joint, you know? I was getting out just like Billy Brown. Right. And first off, the, the mountain's about a traveling lobotomist who was going to psych wards all around. Mm. I know there's psych wards in the movie. Also, you probably no. Googled a blurb about it. Or right. Something. And there are like very. Very intense scenes that were like, you know, very reminiscent of like some of the things that like I saw and experienced, but, you know, not to like trivialize people who get stirred up by those things, but like, like, no, like that made the movie, I think, much more of an intense 
experience. You know, I think if there are, I don't know if there are things that people have this, like, Hey, I, li- I cannot watch. I don't know. Mm-hmm. People getting stabbed or sliced in a movie. Like, um, sure. I get it. But you know, IMDb has like a pretty sophisticated, like description of like all of the graphic content. And I thought that was like, I don't know. I remember being kind of like bothered by that question. Or maybe I'm not entirely sure why, but then yeah. they followed, she followed it up with, um, you know, I asked her, you know, I was asking, we were talking about the movie and I asked how everyone felt about it. And, you know, Sarah said that she felt like there was a, a sex scene just thrown in, you know, just, just for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly like, you know, I've seen dozens of movies where like, a sex scene just thrown in for some titillation, of course. Sure. But like, I mean, the sex scene in the movie is like the pivotal climax where the main character fucks this other um, patient who's about to go through a lobotomy because she she reminds him of his mother. And okay, like nothing titillating about it at all. Like Gross, I, yeah. he gets uh, Jeff Goldblum walks in on them before he even finishes. And that's a bucket of ice water, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> right. <laughs> he offers to join them. Uh-huh. Um, He's doing a jazz riff the whole time. <laughs> Skip to bebop, you know, whatever the shit he does. Right. But it's it's the kind of like tunnel vision that I think, you know, a lot of these critics were talking about with Buffalo 66 half where it's like, oh, here goes like, you know, another titillating sex scene. Like, all right, two stars off my, my letterbox review. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a, a complete misinterpretation of the movie and i think what movies should should be and you know what yeah what watching them should be like right um so yeah i mean i think one of the great things about buffalo 66 is it allows for all that that crazy gamut of interpretation where not only because of Gallo's persona and politics and X and Y and Z. But in spite of it, or you can take that out even, like there, there's so much to latch onto depending on how you view film and art and everything really that I think makes it so fascinating. The nature of cultural conversation today is in my mind defined by its sort of implied universality in the eyes of some of the stupidest people you'll, you'll ever meet. Um, where kind of every single thought or discussion has to inform or consider or what have you, every single other thought or discussion ever thought or discussed, I guess, because the internet and Twitter and all that shit has made it impossible to hone in on any one subject for an extended period of time. And what I mean by that is like, you know, we've all seen screen caps of tweets where somebody will say something incredibly innocuous, like, man, I fucking love bagels. And then the first response is, well, speaking as somebody who has a gluten insensitivity, I hate seeing tweets like this or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And you and I know that so much of the fixation on issues of identity and other superficial bullshit is that over the past 50 or so years, our, our culture has kind of worked itself into this weird corner where it cannot possibly alleviate this growing list of societal ills without examining them in a more materialist framework and 
deconstructing class and everything like that. And of course we can't do that because we're Americans and we're supposed to be happy and love our neoliberal consensus. And it must necessarily be something else that is the problem that we can all sense. We can all identify that a problem exists, but it, it can't be, you know, the system because we like that. And when I say we, I mean, you know, just people who engage and participate in culture and art, which more often than not are liberal Democrats, right? Um, so the best answer we have is to otherize some form of like immunocompromisation um, or dissent, basically. And a lot of that ends up being identity politics, which is unfortunate, unfortunate because the first people who began to push back on that were really just reactionaries who were deemed to be that virus in the cultural bloodstream. And so I think, um, you know, people who get up in arms about and, and refuse to elevate black voices or believe women or all these these taglines that that I, I think we would agree are are good, valuable things we don't take issue with, but just have become empty marketing phrases um, that are just propped up by corporate interests. And those interests don't give a shit about the meaning of those phrases beyond their usefulness as advertising tools or just ways to launder their image as corporate demons. Mm -hmm. So the people who don't play ball for whatever reason, and to be clear, I think the reason a lot of people don't play ball is because they're racists or sexist or, you know, bad people. Um, but for whatever reason, they become the scapegoat for this growing degrade degradation of society that we can all identify when really the responsibility by, by, lar by and large falls on the sort of ruling elite in absence of a system of governance that has the people's best interests at heart. And, you know, also maybe a global cabal of pedophiles or whatever, but we don't live Which, in let's our- Let's be clear, he would be a part of if the door opened. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, I have theories on that, but- Okay, well, Maybe another episode. We'll get to that. But so you have all that, and then you have one Mr. Vincent Gallo. And he's a guy who made a couple good films and appeared in some other cool movies along the way that we've liked and enjoyed and blah, blah, blah. And his body of work exists in this culture and climate where, like I said at the beginning of this rant, I suppose, everything has to inform and be about every single other thing. And if you separate, try to separate the art from the artist, you are a bad person or you are necessarily aiding and abetting bad people like him. And it's just very interesting seeing how people respond to that and parse that out. And I think it was one of the reasons why we like the film Buffalo 66 so much. Cause it seems so the, the absence of, you know, politics in Buffalo 66 make it very peculiar in that like Gallo has very clear reactionary politics. Yes. And you know, with the, I don't know. I, I think that you can say that pretty objectively, that the film is pretty void. You know, despite that, you know, a couple people have DM'd us thinking that, like, his movies are left-wing. Uh, which so A couple people are so fucking <laughs> stupid. Baffling to me. But, like, we can say it's at least, like, you know, while, while you can 
point at you know certain like sexist aspects of it mm-hmm. um you can say it's like fairly void of like political commentary yeah um which is so hard to find now mm-hmm. and that's very surprising considering like how just extreme and outspoken his reactionary politics are mm-hmm. i find that curious you know maybe he's too hung up on getting back at his parents mm-hmm. with this movie that there's just no room for it. Some people might say that those like extreme politics didn't come until later in his life. I have reason to believe that's not the case. Um, and I think, you know, Brown Bunny, same thing, also void of, of those politics. And of course, after that, he completely cracked and decided to be you know, very outspoken. But there's that, that, uh, that sort of like round table critics interview where they have three oh the famous interview where he's in his little sailor get up <laughs> yeah, he's wearing his usa sailor get up and there's those three english critics who spend the first half of it with the interviewer giving their thoughts on the movie which mm-hmm. are you know mostly negative lukewarm ish um, oh you know, so the prem the format of the show is they invite these culture critics or in this instance movie critics on yeah. to t- talk about why they didn't like or hated a movie and then um they bring that filmmaker on right to kind of gotcha then he, howard stern then he was yeah because then he was watching it the whole time and then he comes on for the second half and you know his he gets into it his defense of his movie i think is very very interesting his defense of like his kinds of movies is very interesting and you're kind of with him as he's cr- you know, criticizing the Hollywood liberal establishment until he gets to like calling, um, what's his fucking name? Who's married? Who was married to Susan? Tim Robbins. Tell he starts calling Tim Robbins's film a, a communist movie. Oh right. And you start to kind of realize where he's going. That he's just not. Obviously, he's having like a strong emotional response to like having criticism against his movie. Like he's just not handling that well yeah but then you know makes some strong points about what it's like to make you know radical or challenging films whether that means you know politically or aesthetically what that means and how difficult that is or isn't within the hollywood system and you know that's he's right in a lot of ways maybe for the wrong reasons but you know it's it points to why he's now starring in a daily wire movie which is from ben shapiro after not working for a decade yeah you, there there are there are dots you can connect there um and when it comes to buffalo 66 i agree that it is mostly an apolitical movie but you can also you can see the kind of underpinnings or or the, these this little these seeds that will begin to gestate into more reactionary politics because i mean if you take the dictionary definition, he is the film is a re- reactionary piece against his parents and his home life, right? Mm-hmm. Like we know, Vincent Gallo, the person, grew up in Buffalo, was famously the son of a shoemaker, who <laughs> said the best thing in life, or whatever. How how does he phrase it? The best thing you can be in life is to be a shoemaker, but you'll never be as good as your father. Right. And so you know, I gotta imagine that his dad looks similar to Roger Ebert and that that, that, made <laughs> that, must, funny that would explain it, I so guess more. Um, but so so he 
he, he talks about in, it, I think in that same interview about how he was good in school and he was a good athlete, which maybe those things are true. I don't fucking know. I kind of find both of them hard to believe, but um, is just, just still has this disdain for his parents, his mother for neglecting him and his father for antagonizing him. And that resentfulness penetrates Buffalo 66. It's sort of the central movement in Buffalo 66. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ebert famously said in his review that it, the movie plays out like a, a revenge plot, you know, which I don't think he meant that negatively. I, I mean, I think the, the review was positive. But Actually, I think I, the Rosenbaum review is revenge is in the, the title. I mean, revenge is a very compelling yeah. plot for any movie, you know, whether it's your parents for feeding you chocolate donuts you're allergic to, or whether you're Liam Neeson and your children have been taken <laughs> right. or one child. I haven't seen that movie, mm-hmm. but um, what's it called? I believe it's called taken. Okay. It's the bus that couldn't slow down. Um, so he he has this this childhood where he is he's an outsider fighting his way in right out of the gate, and uh, eventually he moves from Buffalo to the city, New York City, and it's basically the same thing. He's either the only white guy dancing around to run DMC on graffiti rock, or he's the only visual artist who will openly admire George Will in documentaries about Republicans. And eventually, at some point, he starts making movies. And these are just these powerful and honest wrenching films that we are here to discuss. And boom, practically every critic is ready to deride him as like a misogynist or sociopath or guy who's only out to get cheap shots at people who have wronged him or whatever. And and and, and I think we would argue that the the things in his movies that cause that kind type of derision critically are things we like because they're just so powerfully vulnerable and self-reflective. Um, so, I mean, at that point, like from childhood when he's getting take, shots taken at and into the art world in the eighties, when he's still an outsider and eventually into the film world and he's still an outsider. At what point does he throw his hands up and say, fuck it. I'm going to post some insanely racist shit on my website and become the Joker basically. Right. right? Like when does he Joker and and that's what's so interesting right. to try and figure out. You know, I think the sort of lazy answer is the minute that Roger Ebert pushed publish after. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, you know, it's probably right. But, you know, maybe down the road we can get into, like, I have reason to believe that he is um, certainly like the racist reactionary stuff happened like much sooner. Okay. Um, we'll wait. We'll share the story from... Uh, Truth and Consequences, the set of Truth and Consequences, New Mexico. Oh, with Michael T. With Michael T. First yeah. big name drop. <laughs> Many more to come. Oh. Don't you worry about that, you <laughs> hogs. We'll, we'll wait on that. Um, but yeah, it is curious to wonder, like, how do you go from, yeah, being the only white guy, you know, dancing in an episode of Graffiti Rock? He's like best friends with Jean-Michel Basquiat. Like, right. You know, a pretty, I, I suppose he overdosed before he could have a reactionary turn, perhaps. But right. like, it, there's there's some dissonance there that, I mean, and, and maybe it's just as simple as if you're always a provocateur, you will always try and seize opportunities to provoke, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I, 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 I am inclined to think that it just eventually your insecurity driven by having narcissistic parents informs your own narcissism and insecurity as an adult and that combined with just the feeling of 
having to fight your way through the art world or whatever sphere you choose to inhabit at any given moment takes a toll on you and damn suddenly you are recognized by the people at con or whatever and uh, get in fashion catalogs even though you look like a fucking syphilitic dingo and decide well, somehow they're going to put you in <laughs> magazine ads that's i wanted to ask about that do you do you think he's attractive in his own way like i i think he has sharp features and the range of responses is interesting i i was kind of like relieved watching buffalo 66 with helen and mm-hmm. hearing her say like God, he's so ugly. <laughs> I mean, it's nice to hear your girlfriend say that about anyone. Right. But, you know, especially a guy that's, you know. I think I think he's good looking in, in the sense that he has defined features. I don't think he's classically handsome. But, you know, for if, if you were to try and, like, cast a provocative indie director in the 90s, I think that that would be one of the headshots he'd probably pick up. Um you know, if he had his website up at the time, he might Google that and choose not to cast the guy. It's like, oh, he says here he's trying to auction off his own loads. Well, maybe we'll pick somebody else. So, I mean, I guess just to keep talking more about Gallo, the guy, like, you you hear all these stories about him and his personal life and, like, vaguely manipulating and pseudo-grooming college-aged girls and and they're so taken with him because he's this big artist and star and supposedly has all this money and L.A. Realty or whatever, like all this stuff. And then they show up and he gets him from the airport and he's like, you think I'm fat and ugly, don't you? <laughs> and he's just like, he's like, you brought Zycam, right? Like all this weird shit. Like, Dude, the video I showed you today of the girl who claimed she went on a date with him. Yeah. Coffee day. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it's going well, it's going fine. And he's just like. Do your parents love you? <laughs> when she says yes, it's just like date over. <laughs> it's incredible. Like it is so on the nose that if there weren't like a dozen stories and text exchanges that people have sent us, I wouldn't believe it. You right. Know, that, that mimic that same, you know, structure of interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great. That's, that's, that's the best one so far. Yeah. Um, Luckily, you know, didn't end as tragic as some of the others. Right. Thank God. God. She was just like, oh, and then I went home and, you know, forgot about it. One of the other, I think, strange critiques of the movie, I I think a lot of this came from the press junket that came with Buffalo 66, which described it as kitchen sink realism, Mm -hmm. that um, a lot of critics got hung up on that. The movie is unrealistic. Okay. um, Which... You know, press junket notwithstanding is silly. I mean, I think there's there's no indication that this movie, um, and, and maybe it's part of the autobiographical aspect that like, because yeah. I would argue like it, the stuff that doesn't work is the stuff that like tries too hard to be autobiographical, you know, like a, a perfect reproduction of reality or you know a regurgitation of like a real conversation or interaction doesn't always translate great to good cinema Mm -hmm. and i think you see that most at the scene when he the scenes when he goes home right um i think most of that doesn't work well you know it's it's part of this there are aspects of movies that are kind of elusive and difficult to criticize. And this is one of them. I just described them as like feeling kind of clunky and off. And it feels like he's, he's got these traumatic moments 
that he remembers that have stuck with him. Yeah. That are kind of just shoved in there right. in a very haphazard way. And no, there's a lot of like half baked visual ideas in the movie. But like I said early, like I don't like I find them interesting when they don't work. I mean, when he's having the POV shots when they're at the table mm-hmm. and there's the mistakes of not having that person's POVs dinner in front of them and right. things aren't quite matching up. Like it's it's kind of interesting in the way it works. Like but I think you could also consider that a flaw. But like I, well, I think it's most one of the, of the interesting things about interesting. what like authorship, you know, is it's it's a one person's project, so it has the ups and downs that comes with that sort of thing. And I, I, I mean, who gives a shit about continuity? We don't, you know? No, it's a myth. Precisely. And so... I have this radical idea that people know they're watching a movie. It, right. And they're watching a movie. Mm-hmm. And that, oh, the, the plate's missing. They're not all of a sudden, oh, I'm awake. Yeah, it's, no. it's not, that's not shocking you out of the Matrix. No. I also like to just use that excuse at my job so I don't have to worry about continuity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's gotten you very far. Right. You've, you've stayed sane with yeah. that. Uh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. We cut every two seconds. <laughs> right. It's fine. I think the other thing about – because, yeah, when, when we watched it last time, the the dinner scene does have a little clunky awkwardness to it. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that an actor was directing it. You know, Gallo is first and foremost the son of a shoemaker, but then he's also an actor. Um who, who was acting before he was making films and directing. And so I think he has a tendency to just let actors go, especially when you're working with, you know, Angelica Houston and Ben Gazzara, like two fucking legendary names. Uh, it, it, it sort of takes on the, the rhythm of a, a stage piece almost where it, it, it has this free flowing improvisational uh, cadence to it in a way. And you're right. You can either choose to enjoy that or think it's a flaw, but I, I think it is one of the things that makes it a compelling piece of artwork. Um, and, 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 and that's where all that emotion comes from, where he's right. arguing with them about whether or not he's allergic to chocolate donuts. Like where the fuck does that come from? <laughs> right. You know? Well, it ends up like, you know, you, you look behind, beyond rather, I look beyond the technical flaws when you know, you do think about the artist himself and realizing like, oh, he just has this big axe to grind. Mm-hmm. And the 30 minutes or so we spent at the house is him just grinding the hell out of the axe. Yeah. Just can't fucking wait till his parents watch this movie, <laughs> even though they probably never will. And, you know, that that allows you to like, I think, kind of chuckle at some of the flaws, chuckle at some of the bizarre scenes that maybe feel a little bit off kilter and mm-hmm. uh not great way. Yeah. Um, but like the self-indulgence factor is, you know, a positive in this case. I, I mean, I think directors, filmmakers, artists being self-indulgent has the capacity to go in either direction. Of Which course. you kind of see it in Brown Bunny a little bit in the extended <laughs> right. edition, for example. Right. Yeah. Indulgent filmmakers, self-indulgent filmmakers have, the capacity, I think, to go into either extremes. You know, I'm not really lukewarm about any stylistic or autobiographical self-indulgent filmmakers, you know. But it's the reason why people either love Tony Scott or are put off by him. 
Um, you know where I stand. Um, and sometimes he's a bridge too far. Right. <laughs> you might say. Right. <laughs> sometimes he's a San Francisco bridge too far. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Not the Golden Gate. I think it Gate. was L.A. It just wasn't. Or was it? It was. It was the not Golden Gate Bridge. Folks, in he San killed Francisco. himself on the bridge. <laughs> he, he decided he couldn't take it, well, and he jumped off. There are such, I think, measures now in place at the yeah, Golden Gate Bridge. Was there a net? No, I doubt it. I, oh, okay. I didn't think that's where you were going with well, it. I was trying there's... to make a silly little joke. Okay. Well, there's, on average, I think one person used to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge every two weeks. That makes sense. <laughs> if I lived in fucking San Francisco, I'd probably do it too. I'd, I'd drive from fucking Nevada, probably. Yeah. It's a big bridge. Right. Where are you going to kill yourself in Nevada? Yeah, I mean, nowhere cool. You could jump off I, the Eiffel Tower. You, you could probably do some cool suicides in Vegas. Yeah, bad example. I yeah. drive from you, Boise, you know, Idaho. You know what? I, you could drive straight into Area 51 until you get gunned down. That's a good way to do it. Yeah. Just fucking live stream it or something. Well, as we know, when we tried to go there, oh, you yeah. cannot live stream. <laughs> you no. cannot even use Google Maps. We That was the most piss poor attempt to go to Area 51 <laughs> when we were just like, yo, let's do it. It's on Google Maps. Let's go. Right. And then the first sign that said, turn back. That you will be arrested and charged with a federal crime. We yeah. were like, well, let's go back to the hotel. <laughs> well, I'm like also not even certain that that was the Area 51 sign, but rather just one of these several like. Area 50 know. or 52. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, just like military, like state designated areas mm-hmm. not open to people. Yeah. And, but yeah, we were sitting in that hotel and just, I watched like half of one video be like, oh, dude, we can go. <laughs> like, dude, we can go. <laughs> this is so easy. And then we get like an hour outside of Las Vegas and, oh man, Spotify's not working. <laughs> yeah, we can't uh, listen to our songs. We can't listen to Jim Jeffries on stand up. Yeah. <laughs> perhaps before a little of our polit- political activation, we might say. Um, but yeah, it just failed miserably. Um, but anyways, back to where were we at? Self-indulgence. Um, yeah. Could, well, so Lars, Lars von Trier, you could argue, is self-indulgent. He oh, made absolutely. All those movies about being sad and they're good. Yeah. Have you, have you seen The House That Jack Built? That's a movie? That's his no. last feature, yeah. I haven't seen any of them. They're too scary. Okay. <laughs> the house what am I going to watch? It's, I read the, the Wikipedia probably, page okay. for yeah, you probably don't Christ, watch. and it sounded gross and sad. Fair and enough. Why would I want to watch that? Yeah, you probably don't want to watch House That Jack Built either. Then. Yeah, it's scary. The So the House That Jack Built, there's... So how it's structured is the serial killer at the center of the movie, um, surprisingly played wonderfully by Matt Dillon. Okay. And... From uh, Marley and Me fame, or sorry, from you, me, you, me, Dupree. Dupree. <laughs> <laughs> he was the dog in Marley and Me. <laughs> I think he's he's the me in you, me, and Dupree. Because Dupree is Owen Wilson, right? Right. So is it you or is it yeah? Okay. You is That's the girl. Question. Who is the girl? Who's I? I'm not sure who's that in the movie. Anyways. How's that Jack built? Folks, DM us. <laughs> think of the name of the actress in Yumi and Dupree. Right. I'm not typing Yumi and Dupree into my yeah. computer. Um, but he, he plays the serial killer at the center of the film. And he is walking through purgatory um, with, you know, the mythical character that takes you on the, the boat ride to hell. Virgil? Virgil. I think. Yes. And... 
he's just sort of talking to him about his sins and whatnot. And you start to realize that, that Matt Dillon is clearly a stand-in for Lars von Trier. And he's, he's contending with his entire career as a director. And he's contending with... They look a lot alike, too. <laughs> he wishes. He's contending with the things that he has made his actors, particularly his actresses, do on screen and tormenting them and what that means to be a director and sort of just looking at himself in the entire movie. And there's this, he even like directly references the Nazi comments at Cannes Film Festival, uh -huh. which is interesting. Classic riff. And then, <laughs> and then during the, like, not quite the climax of the movie, but as the movie's sort of coming to a close and he's like, the Matt Dillon character is ranting to Virgil. He, <laughs> Lars von Trier shows a bunch of the clips from his movies. Mm -hmm. In um, the movie? In the movie. It's, it's fascinating. What the fuck is this movie about? I, I'm sorry. So he's in... Matt Dillon plays a director. I just, I just ran it down for you. Well, I don't, yeah, but I don't it doesn't know what make else any sense. <laughs> what do you mean? So Matt Dillon, it played... He's, I, I thought you meant that he was like a Greek god version in Purgatory. Like, Matt no. Dillon's character is a director. You don't see them... No, you don't... He's a serial killer. You don't see them... Who walk, directs movies? I, no. I'm not, no, I'm that, not that being is, incredulous. I don't know what you mean. That is the sort of allegory going on. Oh. Um, is my How, how is killing people? How, oh, because he's killing women? In yeah, a way he's, that... he's killing women and, and tormenting them. And he's, you know, talking about, he's talking about serial killing as an art form. Okay. Right. And you, so you never see Virgil until the very end as they actually walk. Oh, right, because he's the hell. clown, and he's and like, you want to play a game? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, did, right. I think I heard about this. You've seen see this it. movie, yeah. A couple sequels. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, another great self-indulgent director that I, saw I, it. I will apologize for at any moment. Mm -hmm. um, to, to an extent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, who knows what wacky thing we'll come up with next. <laughs> well, I don't think he's coming up with much next. I... Yeah, I think like, I showed you that interview where he looks god awful because he's sober now. And oh, that's a shame. So it's it's an absolute shame. Well, didn't isn't yeah. wasn't the whole impetus for the depression trilogy like he got out of the joint? Well, he got sober. I think he, he before took the grippy socks off before Nymphomaniac. Oh, he got sober. Well, no, he was him. like institutionalized, right? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. I'd imagine you got to be sober in there. Well, unless they got the good, who knows how long mouthwash or whatever. I'll tell you when I was, you know, in the joint, they were handing out drugs like candy. Uh huh. There was that one uh, like hype beast kid. I think I told you about. Okay. You literally just ask for Xanax, and they'd be like, <laughs> oh, "Sure, here you go." Really? Yeah. You could do that. Yeah. Well, because his story was it wasn't like sugar pills. He he got in the same day I did. Okay. Right. And he was so fucked up when he got there. Did like, you guys share an Uber or something? Like, <laughs> no. I took an ambulance, not an Uber. Okay. Um, he was so, like, because, you know, you walk in, you're trying to size everyone up. You know, the, the only difference yeah, is you're that, an alpha. You want to make sure right? you're the alpha. <laughs> the difference is you don't, like, throw a punch and start a fight on the first day to make sure you don't become someone's bitch. I got to be the hottest guy in this cycle <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> Instead, you're just kind of sizing up to, like, who is coherent enough for me to like form a relationship with? Yes. And I would say about half the people there. So th there's two, the one I was at, there's a violent ward and there's a nonviolent ward. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because they're separated by 
a door that has windows on it. And I remember at one point, okay. a girl was doing a strip show for the violent ward. Ah. <laughs> Dudes are like jacking off on the other side of the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, How big was, was the door? It was, well, it was one of those Were doors. Were they just taking turns looking <laughs> through the window with their was, dicks out? It was one of those doors, like, you know, like you, you everyone had them at, at schools where it was like, you have two of them with the handle that oh, has the like the latch that you turn and oh. you can push it and then it has those vertical windows that has the like diagonal pattern. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I'm yeah, talking yeah. about? I do, I so, exactly like, what you're talking They're about. just like, I'm picturing them like they're stacked up on each other in the vertical <laughs> yeah, <it's> like <laughs> one dude squatting, another dude's standing yeah. up. But anyway, you're trying to suss out like, God, I don't know how long I'm gonna be here. Who who can I possibly like have Vibe a with, relationship yeah. with? And I'd say about half the people there are like coherent enough to even have a conversation. Right. You know, a lot of people are just staying in their rooms, like catatonic, drooling, whatever. And then half of that half who are vocal, I would say, are personable and willing enough to like form relationships with. Mm-hmm. Anyways, this was one of those guys. He was probably 21. And he told me that he lived in LA. I was like, what are you doing? at a psych ward in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, I was on my way to my dad's funeral in Detroit. Okay. <laughs> and what had happened is I guess he was supposed to hop on a different plane at O'Hare, but he was so fucked up on Xanax that when it landed in O'Hare, he just got, he just, he just left thinking he was in Detroit. Okay. <laughs> he, he was, and he just started, and you know how O'Hare is like, it's not like you just, leave and you get on a sidewalk and you're in a neighborhood you know, midways it's like a that. massive complex right yeah. well and then you get off and it's, it's only highways going in and out right so i gotta imagine he just started walking down the highway and police picked him up ah uh, that'll do it okay <laughs> and when you tell the police like hey i'm i'm in detroit <laughs> <for my dad's> <laughs> they're like all right buddy you're gonna sleep this out so he missed his dad's funeral <laughs> jesus <laughs> christ and it was really funny when he came to like you know when he kind of you know, the first when the bars someone, wore off. Yeah, when yeah. the bars wore off. He uh he was a very funny and personable guy. You know, he uh-huh. he was like a you know, like a social media influencer hype beast kid in LA. You oh, know? sure. Just kind of a goofball. And he actually he, he saved someone's life in the psych ward. Really? Yeah. There was this guy, uh Buddy was his name, uh-huh. who let me tell you, if there was anyone who had a right to kill themselves. It, it was this guy. <laughs> buddy had, uh, he was in a That's wheel- how he got his name. Somebody looked at him and was like, Buddy, I don't know. Buddy had he one. Made me want to think this life thing through. <laughs> buddy had one leg that he had lost to diabetes. So he was in a wheelchair. Shit. And his wife had just left him because mm-hmm. uh, she was cheating on him. I my God. Because he's some just, biped somewhere. Right. Assuredly. Because <laughs> he was just catatonically depressed. I mean, you would. You could look at this guy and just you could just feel it dripping off him. Like oh, God. the kind of like thousand yard death stare, like I just wish I was not here. Um and so yeah, his wife had cheated on him and left him, and I think he ended up there from a suicide attempt. Um and he he hung himself in the the psych ward. Really? While you were there? While I was there. And so they have cameras. Shit. He so every room has two beds. You share a room. Mm-hmm. Thank God I didn't have I the bed next to me was empty, right? But 
Buddy was sharing a room with the Hypebeast kid. Oh, no way. <laughs> Which is a funny pair. And, you know, these rooms are supposed to be suicide proof. Like, there's no mirror. Uh-huh. I would uh, imagine that's a consideration in the cycle. Right. Like, you can't unscrew any of the screws. Like, you know, there's there's nothing. It's It's supposed to be suicide proof. But he had found a way to uh, make his sheets bulky enough to where they wouldn't tear. Because they give you the shittiest sheets so that when they'll tear by, you know, well, just the weight of course, we know about the high well, one. <laughs> we know it's how possible. it can be manipulated <laughs> right. in certain instances. <laughs> but he managed to uh, hang himself over his door. Wow. Right? Because your doors aren't and supposed to. And all with to... one leg, I might add, which right. makes it a little more impressive. It's impressive. Um, cause you're, you know, the doors, you're not supposed to, your bathroom door that you have in your room, you're not supposed to open. They're supposed to come and open it for you. But like every, every time room, you go to the bathroom. Yeah. Shit. But every room had toilet paper stuffed into that lock. They did the Watergate thing where so mm-hmm. the door, you could just pull it. It wouldn't latch shut because the lock was oh, <laughs> stuffed sure. with TP. So his door was open and he, he hung himself and this fucking hype beast kid saved his life. Really? And even though Buddy had 24-hour suicide watch, cameras, you know, you don't want to, like, blame the nurses and social workers. They were so, I mean, they were all tired when they were there. And they, you know, get poop thrown at them weekly. Right. And yelled at. Um, which I was guilty of that. <laughs> Not throwing poop. I was, I was you know. Anyways. <laughs> he, so he saves his life. That must he be how he got the Xanax, though, because he, like. They're like, <laughs> well, either we give you a pizza party or you can have some, right. some zannies for yeah, a week. We can't let you go still because you still think you're in Detroit, but have some bars. <laughs> to diverge a little bit here, the the Rosenbaum review, the end of it kind of reminded me of something. It reminded me of the first time that you and I watched it. Mm-hmm. And he says, based on the clinical evidence of Buffalo 66, one might even argue that one major reason for American independent filmmaking is the desire to indulge such such fantasies at length. And yes, the only reason anybody becomes a filmmaker <laughs> is to look cool and let everybody else know. That's Absolutely. fine. That's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. There's Why, this, no, the only reason anybody ever does anything. <laughs> right. There's this thing uh, Peter Greenaway says where he's like, all art is about uh, sex and death. And people will constantly come to him and say, what about power? He's like, well, power is only a means to have sex. And I'm like, or facilitate death i suppose depending on your <laughs> yeah. goals um but you know that that's that's good shit Smart yeah guy. i i love him yeah he has approximately four months to to kill himself he said he was going to kill himself when he's 80 mm-hmm. well it'll he'll be 80 in april so well the clock's ticking peter mm-hmm. um i'd like to get another feature out of you but that's ain't gonna happen well, unless you get Detroit hype beast on the case, keep him from doing it until he's until he's finally off the clock. But anyways, that that quote reminded me of uh, Brian, who was my like filmmaking mentor when I was younger, um, who I would describe as like an interesting, self indulgent filmmaker. You know, he made. Uh, I met working on a feature of his, and he. It was a very autobiographical feature about a lot of the insecurities around the fact that his wife was the only person he'd had sex with, and that was not the case for his wife, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, it was clearly an autobiographical thing. There's other elements in the movie that are autobiographical. And because 
you know, I like Brian and I find him interesting, like the movie's good. Yeah. Um, could very much understand why people think otherwise. And this was like, you know, this was a long time ago. So this was during when Mumblecore was like hot. And Mumblecore is... You're going to... Yeah, pause for a minute. Yeah. What the fuck is Mumblecore? I don't get it. Is I is it like Garden State? Is that Mumblecore? I don't know if you would call Garden State Mumblecore. I have not seen it, but my impression of, of Garden State is that it's... Well, okay, you know. so define it as a movement. Is it vibes or like... <laughs> it's It's a big part is vibes, you know, and I think mostly propelled by cheap digital filmmaking um, tools in the mid 2000s. You know, oh, you could sure. finally like edit at home, you could get a cheap DV camera or you could rent a nice digital camera and make a film with your buddies. And oh, okay. it's mostly characterized by- So we're talking beer fest maybe or? <laughs> <laughs> not not be- drinking buddies, uh, that dog shit Joe Swanberg movie. I haven't seen But it. not beer fest, beer fest. So there's only a handful of movies I've ever like turned off in the middle of Beer Fest or not uh, Drinking Buddies. Is I was going to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Just- Beer Fest. <laughs> Beer Fest is great. It's a laugh riot right there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, characterized by a sort of naturalistic performance um, that I think mostly is derived from the fact that it's a lot of it's improvised. Oh, okay. Um, so you have a low so budget. So that's where the advent of the scenario rather than a scripted dialogue kind of. Yeah. So you have a low budget. You have, you know, mostly like comedic actors improvising. It's very low stakes. It's very self-indulgent. And I'm, most of it, I think, is is bad. And uh-huh. I think a big reason I like the comedy so much is that it feels like the final word on Mumblecore. It's... Oh, okay. It has, movie. it has those, yeah, the Rick Alverson movie. It has the aesthetic characteristics of it, but sort of puts on the display, like the consequences of like what these characters are in mm. reality. Because, you know, the characters of Mumblecore That's are like mid 30 year old white males who, you know, are just kind of like, it, it's the reverse of Buffalo 66. Like they're, they're like pathetic in character and they're ugly. But they have this like strong redemptive factor at the end, and mm-hmm. like I said, it's low stakes, um, and yeah, like you know, in Alverson's the comedy, like he really flips that on its head, like he really yeah puts on display like how consequential and scary, like you know, unlimited possibility of like the mid thirty year old hipster New York mm-hmm. demographic like has on the world around them, you know, both on like the individuals they encounter and the environment and that's that's why it's great it feels like a direct confrontation with with mumblecore whereas like yeah typically those movies they're supposed to be light and fun and charming yeah and you're not supposed to think about what you know the potential consequences are of of this movie and i don't mean consequences in like a moral way but it just seems to be very naive from from the get-go okay and that's that's sort of my my big issue with it. Not that the movie needs to have necessarily this strong critical voice, but like, I don't want to just watch people hang out. And that's the vibe. I mean, but what we love is listening to people hang out. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who wouldn't want that? And as we know, everybody else does specifically when they talk about the films they like and don't like. And, and themselves. Haven't seen and want to see and uh-huh. the, you know, Jake Paul, but in 
the inpatient, for example. Right. <laughs> which is the kind of... Who wouldn't want to listen to that? So Brian's uh, film was Mumblecore. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, there's... There's interesting stuff in there. It's it's very, very funny. Mm-hmm. And it has, like, a controlled, like, aesthetic language that I think is missing in Mumblecore most of the time. Yeah. And, you know, Casey just fucking lights up the screen. He's so good. Um, but, you know, Firecracker in real life also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy, that guy's a real live wire. I um, love Brian. But, you know, it's... It's because... It's usually hard to define, like, film movements until maybe about 20 years down the road Mm -hmm. when we're getting there. But that's, that's how I understand these sort of like parameters of it. Um, The lazy kind of Dupless brothers and Swanberg, that crowd. Um, But I've been, so it's, it's, I thought of you immediately when I heard this story. (laughs) I keep forgetting to tell you, I almost called you late on me. Like immediately after I heard it, but I was like, no, I have to tell him in person. And then I've kept forgetting. So <clears throat> I was reading uh, Devil's Candy, that that book on Bonfire of the Vanities, which has a lot of anecdotes about what a piece of shit Bruce Willis is. Okay. <laughs> and this guy I work with who's been in the business as an AD and producer for like 30 years, you know, we could just you know, ask what I was reading and he started talking about Bruce Willis. And I asked him, like I've asked him many times, like variations on the who's the biggest piece of shit you worked with? Who's the biggest diva you worked with? Like, depending on the phrasing, always get a different answer. Right. And I think it was Mike in the room actually who asked like, who's the most difficult actor you've ever worked with? And I was so shocked to hear him say Martin Lawrence. Martin Lawrence. (laughs) I was like, what did you work on with Martin Lawrence? Uh And he's like, I was an AD on Black Knight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me, Damn, dude, I love A24. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was pretty surprised to hear that. And so we asked him for, obviously, some anecdotes. And he said he would constantly, like, <laughs> they would get day off. Okay, he falls off horse into a pile of poop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they'd spend hours setting that up. And he'd just be like, no, nah, I don't want to do this. It was like he had just <laughs> he had just never read the script before, and so uh, it was like, uh, like you okay. want me to do what? Gross. He like no. he like wouldn't he would have like the stand in do his rehearsals, and the most insane aspect of it was he, I think had four trailers, right? Hmm. You know, that seems excessive. It's excessive. You need one, right? right? Where you change, and you know. Bigger actors like to have their own like hair and makeup trailer, and if they have their pole, like they can get that. So it's like just them and the hair and makeup trailer. Otherwise, you know, you typically have two, three, sometimes four, and one makeup trailer all going through the looks at the same time. Yeah. But so he wanted his own makeup trailer. I have no idea what the other two trailers are for, but he wanted four because Will Smith had three on Bad Boys. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he wanted to make sure that okay, he had, respect. Yeah, like, I want one more than Will Smith has. Like, I'm the black motherfucking knight. Give me my <laughs> fucking trailers. But how he had it set up was, so a trailer, you can only get in on one side. You know, it's like a mobile home. The sure. doors are on one side. He has... I've, I have seen some movies. Right. <laughs> he had the trailer set up so that 
all the doors were facing inward and they were parked like a square so that no one could look in. <laughs> no way. Yes. So like when the AD they or like someone. They circled the wagons basically. Yeah. The AD told me he had to get on a ladder to look over the trailer. <laughs> and see like if he was dressed or not. If he got there. And make well, how, so wait, how does he get in and out of the little square? I don't know how. He, I don't know. I guess another ladder, maybe? I don't know. Maybe there is one spot where you can kind of hop through. I have no idea. Just this hose pump where you siphon out all the piss and shit, maybe? <laughs> crawl through that? He also he said he had set up a little basketball area within that square. Wow. Where him and his like bodyguards and shit would just play ball while the entire crew is waiting. They're just like, yeah. <laughs> playing So ball. I understand how that can be accurately described as difficult. Yes. It does also sound very cool and yeah. like a, a fun way to participate in filmmaking. Well, that's the thing. Like when I've worked on stuff where like someone has been difficult, you know, I've never been in a role where that's my problem. Yeah. It's like, okay, I, I'll just wait, you know, right. Shoot the shit with people and just, I'll wait. But it starts to become your problem when all of a sudden, Oh fuck. We were only shooting two pages this day. We've shot none of it. And we're 10 hours in. Mm -hmm. It's going to be late because this guy wants to shoot hoops. Right. You know, um, another thing he had said was that he had gotten kicked out of like every strip club in the county. Hmm. <laughs> they were shooting him. Wow. <laughs> it was like, I, I got to, I've got to know what Martin Lawrence was doing to get kicked out of a strip club. Yeah. I mean, it, how, it, like to be a, a rich, famous guy, in a strip club, you would imagine you your leash is pretty long. Like in terms right. of shit you can get away with. And also things you want, you you pay for and you get your lap dance or whatever. So like what are you trying to get that you can't pay for? You right, know? that's true. That that can't be good, you no. know, if you're not taking over an answer or something. Like Right. So sometimes he would be really late because he'd go to strip clubs like two, three hours outside of town because he got kicked out <laughs> of all the, the, the radius <laughs> keeps increasing every day. That's funny. Yeah. Wait, where did like, they shoot it? Like it's a time travel movie, so like, we're, right? So they, they, they shot it in it? ancient Europe. Oh no, they, I don't know where they shot it. You know what? You had me for a minute there. <laughs> I was like, ancient Europe, okay, yeah. fucking no. Transylvania or something. Yeah, I, I, I think that was that was that was most. If, there, if another anecdote comes to me, I will, I will text you immediately. You better. I I wanted to call you immediately because I was like, if I forget any details, I'm gonna be so bummed. Like this is so funny. Jesus, Black Knight. Right. Black Knight. A movie that no one cares about. Uh huh. I I have seen that movie actually. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you get that scene where the guy falls off his horse into a pile of shit. Like, and I gotta tell you, sometimes I'll say most of the time. That's all it takes. That does it for me. I'll say. It's worth the price of admission there. Well, you want to you want me to show you VR chat? Yeah, let's do it. Okay.